Hello, Pillow Talkers. Welcome back to the pod. On this episode, my friend Jenna Starkey is going to teach us about the Enneagram, which you may have heard of, you may not have heard of. Jenna's going to tell us more about it, but it is a framework, a kind of like personality motivation framework that I have become pretty interested in and has really been helping me a lot in understanding myself and understanding people I'm in relationship with. Namely, Benjamin, my primary relationship. I really like these frameworks like Enneagram, like human design, Myers-Briggs, frameworks that can help us better understand ourselves and better understand other people and also appreciate what works for us, what we want, etc. And appreciate that other people are motivated by other things and they have other values and that's okay. It's not a, a better or worse necessarily. It's just oh, this thing is important to this person, this thing is less important to me, but how can I respect that that is important to this person by understanding that they may be operating from a different place than I am. So when I was matchmaking, I actually used to use this framework developed by Dr. Helen Fisher, who is an anthropologist who wrote a really awesome book I highly recommend called Why Him, Why Her, which is all about romantic compatibility. Uh, you can actually go take the quiz online. I just just search Dr. Helen Fisher compatibility quiz. That was a framework that I used that informed a lot of my matchmaking and super helpful, super helpful. And I just think it's wonderful to deepen our understanding through these different frameworks of how we can enhance our own experience and be in relationship with other people and appreciate our differences. So. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. And as always, if you love this episode, if you get some value from it, please share it with your friends and family, share it on social media, Uh, tag me. I would love to repost you. Send me a message on Instagram, send me a DM, slide into my DMs. I am always really happy to hear what lands with you and what you are loving. Relax. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. (sighs) Welcome to Pillow Talk Radio, the most delicious place to be. On this podcast, we explore how to create more connection, possibility, romance, and magic, and love, and in life. I'm your host and relationship specialist, Cora Boyd. Are you with me? Okay. Hello. I'm so excited. My friend Jenna Starkey is here today. She is a fulfillment coach for high-achieving heart-centered professionals, which is an identity I can get behind. And she's also an expert and instructor in the Enneagram, which is what we're going to focus our conversation on today, if you don't know what that is. Jenna, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. (laughs) How delightful. So tell us a little bit about what you do with clients and then we'll move into how you use the Enneagram as a modality, what that is, why people should know about it and why it's life-changing. Yay. So what I do as a fulfillment coach is help people really figure out what living a fulfilling life means to them. I'm looking at somebody's life as a whole. So I'm usually identifying their values, 
their blind spots, limiting beliefs, taking everything into consideration in their life and, and really working closely with them to figure out how to redesign their life, essentially, that's deeply in alignment with who they really are. It's the six-month program, so we talk for every other week for six months, and they basically get me as a partner in crime to really like help them see who they really are. And in the very beginning of the program, a really important piece of the puzzle for me is getting on the same page with them vocabulary-wise about the way that they see the world mm. and really understanding their unique motivation. If I don't understand their unique motivation in the world or their unique experiences as a human being, it's not going to work as well. Yeah. And so I use the Enneagram to do that. And the Enneagram is something that I grew up with. So my mom introduced me to the Enneagram when I was like 10 years old. Wow. I did not know that. You didn't? No, I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, like it's deeply ingrained. Totally. And it was actually like the thing that first like opened my eyes to truly being myself. And it, it is the thing that sparked this obsession with being curious about the way people see the world. Mm. So I am the coach that I am because of the Enneagram. And that moment when I was 10 years old, where everyone in my family was able to like understand like what lens that they were seeing the world through. And my parents thought, thought that there was something wrong with me because <laughs> mm. I was so different from my brother who was really a perfectionist and really black and white thinking. And I was the one who was sort of like had a million interests and was leaving my jacket everywhere. And they thought that there was something <laughs> seriously wrong with me, yeah. you know? And so when I realized that I was this type, the enthusiast, the, the type that really cares a lot about the world and experiences, my whole family was like, oh, okay. Mm. this is how you see the world. We're going to give you permission to be that now because we have language for it, right? Yeah. So it was this like pivotal moment in my life where I realized, oh, there's a tool to understand myself and a tool to understand the people around me. And so I did living room workshops when I was like in middle school and high school and college and then in San Francisco when I was living there just because it was a an excuse to talk about the way we see the world from different points of view. And then- yeah. I had this soul searching moment to figure out the career that I wanted. I was like, how do I use the Enneagram to do that? And so that's how I found coaching. And I actually tried to kind of get away from the Enneagram for a while because at that time it was, it was pretty like woo woo. Like it wasn't like the Myers-Briggs or some of these other personality typing systems that were really sort of black and white. The Enneagram is really dynamic. We move throughout types and that's part of why businesses weren't like that into it. But so I tried to get away from it. And then I finally, it came, it came back and I realized that, man, this is the most helpful tool in helping me coach people. So now, now it's a little bit more popular and, and I can use it in a way where people really appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thought because I know also just Jenna was suspecting my type and I was really, I didn't realize it, but I was really resistant to taking the test. Yeah, and I, I, yeah I was, I was avoiding it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then I realized I was like, whoa, why am I being so resistant to this? And I think also with personality typing tests and there's like a bunch of different types and like Myers-Briggs is maybe the, the better known one or like what is used in the corporate world more often. I also, with clients, there's a really, really simple, just four type test. It's not the DISC. 
but I have played around with that. And again, like I'm also not super familiar with all of this and that's part of why I wanted to invite you because I'm so, I'm curious to learn a little bit more, but there's, it's from um, Dr. Helen Fisher, who is an anthropologist who studies like compatibility and romantic matching and it's four parts. And I, I took it, I read that book. uh, The book is called Why Him, Why Her? about mm-hmm. compatibility, romantic compatibility. And there's only four types, but I realized I took it and because it's so simple, it's very simple to learn. It was really easy for me to figure out what people are to be like, oh, that person's a negotiator explorer. Oh yeah. So like that was kind of has been my foray. And in terms of like helping me understand myself and both in terms of how I see the world and what I value, and also noticing just that very simple test alone, and just reading that book alone gave me so much more compassion for respecting and acknowledging that different people are coming from different places, which is fairly obvious, right? But when you break it down in that way, it's like, we forget that a lot of times. We're like, oh, why are they doing that? It's like they are valuing something different. We all have different value systems that motivate us towards different things. And Jenna also has a really cool deck of, uh, or like, can you tell us about your value deck? Yeah. Value cards. uh, There's a a playing card deck of 100 different values. So words that represent things that really matter to you. And then you can sort them into piles of very important important or not important. And then you kind of rank them from your top 10 in order. So you, you're kind of left with your top five and top 10 values. And it's a really useful little audit for yourself to figure like, what can I not live without? And oftentimes when we do this exercise with people, it's people get like sick to their stomach because they have to let go of things that are really important, or at least prioritize things. And it's just like kind of an existential exercise about like who you really are. So I love doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really taking the time to learn these things about yourself, right? Because we all feel like, okay, yeah, I know what I value, but like, have we actually sat down and looked at, okay, here are my values. And that streamlines decision-making processes so much and it really helps you understand where you're coming from. I think it heightens a lot of self-awareness where you can say, well, why would I be doing that thing? Like, would that be in line with my values? Would that be in line with my priorities? It, it just, it simplifies and it helps you streamline your focus and, and where you're directing your energy to. And yes. also in communication with other people, you can be like, well, this is a really deep value for me. This really matters for me. Yes. We have somewhere to kind of rest our mind. I always say that in the absence of data, we make up stories mm. that are not true that confuse us. It's like survival instinct is going to send us into spiral loops. And so if we, we've done the, we've gotten proactive about who we are, we can reach for those things. They become shortcuts and then it helps increase confidence. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, here are the value cards. So they, they look <laughs> awesome. like this. So you have like Comfort, your courtesy. Values, you know, and then you can reach for them in a moment and that can come in handy when you're dating, of course, when you're mm-hmm. networking, when you're interviewing. I have was just working with a girl this morning about having her five values written down in front of her. So when she's lost, she has something she can reach to that feels authentic to her. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think too, in terms of dating and romantic compatibility, I see people getting so caught up in sharing the same preferences or share like there's such a culture and especially in the dating industry, right? Like everything that's created economically around dating. It's like, we like the same things. What artists are they like on Spotify? What Uh, you know, what concerts did you go to this year? And I mean, that also, those are examples that are relevant to you. Jenna's very knowledgeable on music, (laughs) but, and it does matter, right? Like these things get to matter. Preferences do get to matter, but like really what is the fundamental indicator of success in relationships is shared value systems. And that's really what matters. And like, we don't have to like all of the same things so long as we can respect that in each other, right? And so long as there's some compatibility and it doesn't have to line up exactly, but there's some compatibility and like what drives us in the world. Yeah. I I think just to riff off what you're saying in terms of shared values, I think that can feel so vague and like arbitrary and nebulous to a lot of people. Like there's an assumption that like, doesn't everybody love connection? Doesn't Mm. everybody love being empathetic? Doesn't everybody like fun? There's this sort of assumption like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But when you get really clear on like the words, recognize that they can be really clashing to the person that you're dating. Like I remember... Uh, a friend who introduced me to the value cards, actually, he was really excited because I was a new coach. He's like, Jenny, you're going to love this exercise. And I'm really curious what your values are. And I, I did the values and he was like, Jenna, I can't date the person that I'm dating. My values are so much different than yours and mine. Like I should be dating you instead of the girlfriend. He went and broke up with that girlfriend. <laughs> he realized yeah. how classy his values were. Like all of his values were like health mm. and compassion and intimacy and openness and like these kind of warmer values. And the girl that he was dating was like money, success, image, very, very different from the way that he was seeing the world. And he, yeah. he, had, he couldn't find the words to describe it. Yeah. This is why I'm feeling triggered is because my values are being stepped on. That's a good way to identify your value is when you feel like triggered in a relationship or in life, if you identify a value that's being stepped on. Absolutely. And also recognizing that what you value, it's not necessarily inherently better or worse than what other people value. It's just yeah. like, it's your way of being. So I think it also invites so much insight around compatibility and also gives us license to value what we value and to recognize, oh, we don't value the same things and also not make someone else wrong for valuing something different. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Being able to sort of unhook from the judgment of it and allowing yourself to be like same size. I always use this language when I'm coaching people. I love it. I, you've said so many things. I'm like, oof, I just, I got to steal that unhook from the judgment. Also, I love like, in the absence of data. The absence of data. We make up yes. stories. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> I've done all these one-liners over the years. Love it. So with the unhooking from the judgment, I think what's really important for people who value the judgment guess what? There are like two or three different kinds of judgment. There's discernment, which Mm -hmm. is really helpful, which is, oh, you have those values and I have these values. That's Mm -hmm. the useful kind of discernment. Mm -hmm. But the damaging kind of judgment that we want to unhook from is my values are good. Your values are bad. Right. Right. That's never going to help. But if we can get to that place where we're same side, I say, like we're looking to the same place. We both want to be happy. Yeah. I don't, I don't want you to be unhappy. So how can we figure this out either 
we work together to find a common ground with our values, or we work together to figure out how to live our lives separately in alignment with our values. Instead of it being like, you said, I said, you did this, you know, it becomes a sort of clashing experience when really you're wanting the same qualities in life or experiences. They just might not align. Yeah. So I want to circle back to people's feelings around personality typing tests because I know a lot of people think it's bullshit. (laughs) A lot of people love it, right? Certain types of modalities have cult followings in a way. And I think we can acknowledge that, you know, people are complicated beings. And in any time that we're categorizing, or, you know, classifying humanity into categories like, yes, there's an enormous margin for error. And that doesn't invalidate how valuable I also am thinking about like the etymology of the word valuable now. (laughs) Yeah. How valuable it is. So I'd love to hear you speak on that because I'm sure you've had the experience of talking about this with people and having them like shit on it. (laughs) And I'm wondering how you've learned, because this is something that's been with you since you were 10, how you've learned to speaking to people's value systems and acknowledging where they might be coming from in that judgment, how you've learned to speak about that. I'm so glad you're asking this question because what I want for people is to take what's useful and to leave the rest. And Mm -hmm. that was actually why I left the Enneagram for a while Mm-hmm. Because I was finding that the typing thing, like I couldn't, I didn't have the language to understand what to do with the typing of it. Labeling is more damaging than good. But here's yeah. where I've landed now with the Enneagram specifically is that we are all deeply dynamic human beings and we have all of the types in us, mm-hmm. every single one of us. When we wake up in the morning, right, we are driven by something that is unique to us mm-hmm. and it's kind of our home base. And our home base view on the world was determined by nature and nurture, right? It's, it's our conditioning. It's based on, you know, how we were raised and who we were when we came out of the womb, you know? So by five, six or seven, we determined how we're going to get love and how we're going to get security. And so there's just sort of a certain sort of flavor to that motivation. And it's, it stays with us our entire life. So that is not to say that you are only that, that type, right? But when we are able to recognize that lens, it's actually the window to step out of to be free. Mm -hmm. So what I've learned now is that the Enneagram type, right, is is really like your opportunity for personal growth. It's a Mm -hmm. shortcut to help you become more of your truest self without any conditioning or typing. This whole personality type is to do the opposite of type you. It's to help you see the box that you've put yourself in so that you can step out of it. That's beautiful. I love that. How many types are there? And can you give us like a very brief rundown of the types? So there are nine types. There are nine key motivations. And then there are three subtypes, which means there are three kinds of each, but I'll go through the nine. So number one is the perfectionist. And so mind you, when I'm going through these, remember that words are just constructs, right? It's like an attempt at putting language to something invisible. So people get kind of triggered by the names. We all have different associations with different words. Precisely, precisely. So there are lots of different names. That doesn't matter. It's, It's the essence of the motivation that matters, right? So ones are are motivated to do the right thing. So they have a strong sense of integrity, right and wrong, ethics, morality, and quality, follow through, right? So they have a very strong inner standard. They're quite hard on themselves. The perfectionist or the reformer. 
And then number two is the, the helper. Mm-hmm. So, or the giver, the generous helper, I think is what it's called with one type. Twos are motivated to be loved, appreciated. They are, they're really other people referencing. So they're thinking about other people before themselves for the pandemic. I have, I work with a lot of twos who are starting fundraisers, calling everybody to make sure they're okay. And they're wondering why they're so burnt out. And it's because they're not focusing on themselves. They're putting everyone else's, you know, oxygen mask on before their own, but they really care about being appreciated and loved and cared for. And they do a lot to do that. Threes are the achiever. Threes are motivated to achieve their goals. So they're really efficient. They have their eye on things that they want to accomplish in the world. They care a lot about how they present. They can kind of turn it on in a crowd. They're also quite hard on themselves because they want to be the best, right? Like I'm also coaching a few threes and they will, they will be the first to say this. They want to be the best at quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Like I want to be the best social distancer. I want to be the best at the most of my alone time. Like, and they're hard on themselves in that way because Somewhere along the way, they determined that they needed to do that in order to be loved and have security. So that's the three. And then the fours are the individualist or the romantic. So fours are motivated to be unique, authentic, original. Yeah, they care about authenticity. And so they care a lot about like beauty and art and music. And they kind of have like a more dreamy, moody quality to them. They care a lot about how they they dress and present mostly for themselves, right? Like I know the most fours have like tattoos because they're quite nostalgic. They care about like mm. the past and they care about story and they care about being original, right? Yeah. And so a lot of fours are trying to find like their place in their story. Fives are the investigator or the observer. So fives are motivated to understand how the world works or how to, how to understand how things work. Mm-hmm. So fives, I think one of the names is a, called the quiet specialist. So mm. most fives are like the one in the room who are kind of keeping to themselves and conserving energy at the party. But like the moment you walk up to them and have some questions, they have so much to say. They have this like rich inner world. Mm. They are kind of the Einsteins of humanity. They, they can follow through with things longer than others. They care deeply about topics and like getting to the bottom of things. So they're the ones really solving the problems. <laughs> Okay, and then the six is the loyalist. A couple other names for the loyalist is the loyal skeptic. So they're skeptical, they are questioners, they're curious, but they are motivated to have security Mm. and to feel a sense of belonging. And so sixes are the ones sort of planning worst case scenarios. They check in with their friends and their family, make sure that they are safe and taken care of. They're the, one, they're the nesters and they're the ones asking everybody for advice before they take a leap. They care a lot, a lot about trust. So when I work with people in a coaching capacity, I know that they're a six or I usually think I can determine that they're a six because of this struggle with trust whether it's like trust in themselves or trust in others or the government or this, it's like, are they taken care of? Sevens are the the enthusiast or the adventure or the epicure. 
So sevens are motivated to be happy, experience life, experience, yeah, experience the richness of life and opportunity. We care a lot about lifting people up and being positive. And we, we reframe things in a really kind of natural way, which can sometimes result to sort of like a avoidance of like darker feelings and, um, and a little bit of like a wanting to do so many things that we lose sight of like a discerning path. So as coaches, it works for us because we get to work with lots of different clients and experience lots of different things. And that really supports our strength. We, yeah, we're natural enthusiasts. So we care a lot about topics and we want to share it with others. I think the way that other people can perceive sevens is up in the clouds sometimes, right? A seven compared to a four, a seven is oftentimes like up here and a four is kind of down here on the earth. And so being able to kind of recognize that it's usually because we feel like a need isn't being met, right? We feel limited in some way. So that's kind of the work for us is to feel like we have enough where we are. And then the eight is the asserter or the challenger. Another name for the eight is the active controller. So they are the ones that like command a presence in a room with their body and they do not care what anyone else's opinion is. They really don't, but they (laughs) they are also protectors. They are willing to say the hard thing and to spar. And I work with a lot of people in a business setting and that can be a really common boss to solve like difficult conversations with (laughs) because they can be intimidating. And what they're wanting is for you to stand in your own power. Um, Aids also can shine in moments like this, like the pandemic, because they care a lot about social justice, Mm. right? So they care a lot about making sure that the voices are heard and it could, because they're not afraid to be the tip of the spear, right? Mm. They also are something to note about the eights is that they have a tough outer shell, but a really like gooey inside. They can be quite vulnerable, Mm. but it takes some time to get there and they need to kind of build that trust to get there. Okay. The last one is the peacemaker. They are another name for it is the adaptive peacemaker. They are very adaptable. And actually here's the thing that's really interesting about the nine is yes, nines are motivated to have harmony. So they're very mellow. I always say that they're like bubble baths to be around. They, they see everyone else's perspective. They are, they're natural mediators. They kind of like to blend into the background. They like to be the opposite of the tip of the spear. However, every Enneagram mentor I've ever had has said that the nine is the most powerful type in the Enneagram because they are not the tip of the spear. They have this agility of observation And they oftentimes kind of judge themselves for that, for being like, I wish that I was like decisive and bold and action oriented, but really they need to be exactly who they are in terms of their strengths and be able to understand that that, that's their strength. Their edge is the non-edge is what I say. Like they are the ones who, who are able to sort of see everyone's perspective and it can be quite helpful. However, there can be diminishing returns, which means that like, they can really procrastinate because they want to avoid conflict, mm, right? Yeah. So being able to kind of be in, in touch with that is the goal of the nine. So there you go. Awesome. That's so cool. That was very comprehensive. And as you were talking about all of the types, I was understanding people that I know. I'm like, oh, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that dynamicism of this? In terms of like, okay, my understanding, and I know just a tiny bit, mostly from you, <laughs> and uh, my friend Hannah is also really into yeah, that. Yeah. 
So that's part of why I'm getting more curious about it too, is because I was, I was resistant to it for a while. Yes. And I'm like, yes. so many people I really trust and respect are so into this and have been telling me for two years that I need to get into the Enneagram. So can you explain a little bit how it works in terms of the dynamics of it? And like, my understanding is there are certain conditions under which we default to different types. And it's really great to understand that about yourself. How does that work? Every Enneagram teacher I've ever had says your home base type does not change, right? That's based on our conditioning. However, there are lots of things that do shift and change all the time. So let's just take all use me for an example. As a seven, my home base is, my default, I should say, is like to be happy. To mm-hmm. My focus of attention when I wake up in the morning and throughout my job and throughout life is like, I want to be happy. I literally call myself a fulfillment coach, mm-hmm. right? I care a lot about being happy and allowing people to discover what that means for them. That really is never going to go away for me. Mm-hmm. Um, however, as a seven, when I am stressed, and they, they used to call it stretch in growth, but now they call it stretch and release, at least with one of the systems that I work for. So when I am stressed, I can go towards the one, which is the perfectionist. Yeah. So this showed up a lot when I was working at a school and I had deadlines and I would feel this like sort of real sense of, okay, there's a right and a wrong way to do this. I need to be in control. And there was like this tightening that would happen and I would lose my flexibility and my like playfulness. And I would get kind of serious and methodical and it, it can be quite helpful sometimes as a coach, but it can have, again, diminishing returns where it becomes a little critical. So yeah. that's something to notice. And then when I'm in growth, which to me means like when I'm at ease and I feel, I call it Zen Gen. <laughs> I'm like Zen Gen and I'm like doing my yoga or I'm at in nature or I'm doing my bubble baths, I go towards the five, Mm. which I know you and I both love to be in our five. And fives are the investigator, the observer. We can think about time and space. Oh, yes. That's when the deep thinking happens. Yes. Yes. Okay. This is so enlightening for myself because I'm also a seven, which I only know because you encouraged me to take the test and I'm very glad that you did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that to me is actually one of my favorite parts of the Enneagram is recognizing that I always have access to that. I'm not like bound to the sevenness, but the five is a place that helps me kind of check in to see how I'm doing. And I can, I can reach, I can step into it whenever I want. And that's also something that we can do. It's like playing with identity is a really a perspective in general is so helpful and they can kind of be like personas, mm-hmm. but the one and the five are sort of like the easiest access points for me to notice. Another I thing- I call this with my coach, we call them avatars. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And another couple ways that the type moves is like the wings. So the types to the side of you, right? The Enneagram is in a circle. Seven, either- can lean toward the six or seven can lean toward the eight. And they used to call it like your wings. Like you're either a seven with a six wing or a seven with an eight wing. I don't feel like that is as important, but that can change over time. I will say for myself, when I was younger, I was a lot more fearful and I had that like need to double check everything with other people. So I kind of lean a little bit more towards the six. I called it my, my bunny my like mm-hmm. animal identity, you know, and I'm kind of stepping away from that. I'm going more in towards my eight as a seven where I'm like way more in control of my thoughts and I feel way more confident and I don't care as much what people think. So I'm moving into the, my lion is what I call it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That can kind of shift over time. You yeah. can also use the two types to the side of you for decision-making. Mm-hmm. So if I ever feel like 
I don't know how to solve this. I just want to be happy. And like, I'm not feeling like we're kind of too stuck on our, our one lens. We yeah. can go, but what would an eight do in this moment? Oh, like we kind of can bring a new filter to mind where we go, I'm just going to say fuck it and go for wow. it. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I resonate with that so much, especially in terms of like when I was younger and, and a lot of uh, how I've heard it called like a cognitive extrovert, where a yeah. lot of decision making comes from like querying a lot of different perspectives. And I've noticed that I still do that, but I do that from a place as I've gotten older, like I do that from a place of really wanting to know the lay of the land and a lot less from a place of trying to appease to what other people think and the, the bunny, the agreeable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. And which is not to say that that perspective isn't really valuable for some people. Some people yeah. need a little bit more of that thinking through their process and thinking and asking for ideas and and for being loyal and for for having that sense of belonging for for joy and happiness. Yeah. But for me, I was like overexerting that like need to to check in with everybody and I was losing myself, you yeah. know? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's such an awesome way to look at it in terms of how you can really use this as a modality to not only understand yourself, but make decisions and also more consciously show up in the world, bring more intentionality to how you want to be and like, oh, well, how can I step into this kind of like rigid perfectionist? Oh, that doesn't feel good. It feels constricted. Like what's something else I can draw on over here Yes, to help me move through this, navigate this situation, make this decision, whatever. That's so oh, fucking cool. Isn't it cool? Remember what I said earlier, our, like our job is not to, to just stay in our seven box, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's to notice what's working and what's not working within that framework and to go, you know, what's just not working is I'm actually not fulfilled, right? Mm-hmm. So something that I play a lot with, with seven in particular is like, you know, as a seven, our natural instinct is to be motivated to have fulfillment. Well, that can create the hedonistic treadmill. I want to mm-hmm. keep doing and experiencing, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But we're like, why am I not happy? Yeah. But, you know, so for anyone listening who doesn't know, let's explain the treadmill. Yeah. It's just constantly wanting to follow pleasure, experience. Yeah. It's we adapt quickly and we adapt to the next level. It's like, oh, I'm going to be happy once I get that TV and then we're, we're thrilled for like three days and then we're like, oh, I'm going to be really happy once I get that hot tub and then we're happy for three days. Yeah. Yeah. So if we just go along our merry way, living in our sevenness, Cora, we're not going to be fulfilled. <laughs> so what I have learned is like as a seven, our biggest fear is being limited. Mm-hmm. That is actually the very thing. That oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Order. Big time. I'm like, you step on my freedom and my independence and I right? will bark at you. Right. That is how we work yeah. for ourselves. It's so, yeah. yeah. so deep-rooted. Mm-hmm. However, that is the path towards full fulfillment. And mm-hmm. here's, here, here's how I've, I've learned to sit with that is that is, I've been reading a lot about the Tao Te Ching, yeah. right? Awesome. It's, a, it's the Buddhist or the Taoist text on um, fulfillment, essentially. And they say that fulfillment comes from the empty cup, which is acceptance of and being able to hold opportunity and coming back to your, who you really are and letting things kind of pour in. Because if we, if you imagine a very full cup, you don't have any room to accept things, right? You're never going yeah. to be full. So I, I play with that a lot to step out of my sevenness. And there's a, a sort of a, an opportunity to to do that for everybody to ask yourself like what is the thing I'm chasing and how can I do the opposite in order to actually have what I want 
Yeah. Yeah. And like open the space for things to come in. Yeah. Wow. That's really awesome. So I'm curious, what is the, like, what's like the Enneagram scene? <laughs> like what's the community like oh with the Enneagram? Do you go to conferences? How do people who are really into this come together? What is the culture of this? What kinds uh-huh. of people or like, how would you describe that? See. Oh, that's an interesting question. I definitely have some things to say about it. Well, it kind of like hit the scene in the 90s in the Bay Area. So it, it, like Claudio Naranjo, for, I think he was based in Argentina in the 70s, like really like took this ancient framework and made it his own. And in the 90s, it kind of hit like Cal Berkeley, Stanford, and it started like all these little workshops and person panel discussions started popping up. So in the Bay Area for a long time when I was growing up, it was like middle-aged personal development junkies who were trying to find themselves. And then over the last so many years, it's really evolved. It's, there are pockets of passionate people all over the world. The, the two that are standing out to me are the Enneagram Institute which is based in, I think it's Palo Alto in the Bay Area. There's like a ton of workshops and it's people now of all ages, like people in high school and college and 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s are going to these workshops and sitting on the panels. Yeah. So they will kind of sit together, people of all ages, all cultures. And it really is every culture can use this framework. And, um, and it's really inclusive and warm. So that's yeah. one. And then another one that this is the assessment that I got certified through, which I think is by far the most effective. It's the integrative Enneagram, integrative9.com. That's based out of South Africa. And they're the ones that finally took this like woo-woo, terrible branding concept and like made it a little bit more colorful and a little bit more modern. And so a lot of people are sort of like grabbing onto that assessment now because they finally understand it. And in like shopping it to businesses and corporations and and also freaking Instagram. People have created all these amazing profiles and handles to Mm. share the Instagram knowledge. Like Annie Graham and Coffee is this one woman who like makes a ton of really funny little Enneagram memes, you know, about like what's your Enneagram type doing in quarantine? And it's people are passing it around like crazy over Instagram. So there are like hundreds of those popping up. So I've noticed over the last like couple years, the interest for the Enneagram is becoming a lot cooler, a lot like younger and a lot just more readily accessible. That's awesome. I'm going to follow that. And um, I'm curious too, because I think I only started to hear about it a couple years ago because my friend Hannah was reading the book and telling me I needed to get into it. And then I maybe heard murmurings of it. And then I heard about it from you. How often would you say people are familiar with it? From a client perspective, I would say 90% of the time people have heard it. Okay. Uh, I would say 50% of the time, maybe 40% of the time, 40 to 50% of the time, they know their type. Yeah. 10% of the time, they don't know and they don't care and they don't want to know. (laughs) It's like, they really feel like, like you said earlier, I don't want to be typed. I'm the perfect 10. You, you yeah. don't know. Like, I'm the perfect 10. <laughs> it's like a yeah. real resistance to that. Yeah. Right. That, don't put me in a box, right? When off. what you're describing is it's actually a modality to break out of a box. Exactly. Ah, the sweet irony. Yeah. Right? It's Incredible. About, it's about becoming fully conscious to the invisible patterns and constraints that we've put ourselves in. 
Wow. Fuck yes. Wonderful. Well, any closing statements? This was so informative and really, really interesting. And I'm very excited and encouraged to continue learning more about this. While you have a captive audience, what are a few things you notice in coaching that you just wish more people were aware of? That they know inside what makes them happy, Mm. right? And that if they spent more time really carving out spaciousness to dream and to think and to slow down, which is a perfect time to do that with quarantine and like truly see the value in spaciousness, they will be able to tap into those ways of being where they trust themselves. They are able to let go of the limiting beliefs. Like that to me is the secret to everything is like noticing your patterns, creating space, giving yourself permission to value it and not letting anybody else tell you what, what fulfillment is. I know that's sort of, it's really cliche, but it is so important. I hear it every single day. It's so essential, especially as we look so much outside of ourselves for other people to tell us, oh, here's how you do this thing. Here's how to date. Here's how to do this. Here's what to look for in a career. And it's just so important to recognize. And we forget so often that other people are coming from different operating systems. Yeah. And I think people really know. So people cognitively get that. Yeah. They know. But what right. they struggle with is in the execution of it, which is more of a being priority than a doing priority. What yeah. I mean by that is like, how can you give yourself enough time to move through the discomfort of it and to let go of the thoughts to actually finally get to that place where you go? And now I know what I believe. Mm. That takes time. Yeah. Right? It doesn't take five minutes. It takes maybe a whole day of nothingness to get there. And yeah. So and we have a whole lot of nothingness at the moment. I mean, we have a whole lot of action too. We have a whole lot of a lot of things, right? Um, and, I think, and I think people think that's enough. We, you have to protect it with, with right. that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Mic drop. I'm going to yeah. drop the mic. Jenna, thank you so much. How can people find you if they want to work with you, if they want more of you? Yay. Um, They can find me at my website at jennamstarkey.com and you can schedule a free sample session if you want to try a little discovery session on fulfillment coaching or if you want to talk about the Enneagram. So jennamstarkey.com backslash schedule. I think that's the best place to find me. Awesome. You can find my social media stuff and the Enneagram resources on my resources page. So perfect. Thank you so much, Jenna. You're welcome. Thanks, Cora. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pillow Talk Radio. I'm Cora Boyd and make sure to subscribe so we can keep you in the loop. In the interim, you can find me on Instagram at the Cora Boyd, YouTube Cora Boyd, website CoraBoydCoaching.com. Have an excellent rest of your day, night, morning, evening, whatever it is, wherever you are, and we'll catch you next week.